0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Ben Dodds, Associate Professor of History at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, to discuss his latest book, Myths and Memories of the Black Death out 2022 with Palgrave. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you for talking to me about this.
0: I'm quite excited. How are you today?
1: I'm pretty good, thanks. We're having a, a warm winter day here in North Florida today. So it's sunny and pleasant and nice.
0: It's hard to argue with that. And you're teaching this semester?
1: Yes, I teach a, a Western Civilization Survey, which I absolutely love, and we've got up to the ancient Greeks, so that's what we're discussing this week.
0: I love Western Civ, too. It's fun. And, you know, we have colleagues who really hate doing it. I don't understand.
1: It is a lot of fun, and the students are very enthusiastic already about some of the topics, and they want to know more and so on. So, yeah, it's one of my favorites.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. All right. So, our first job here with this book is I want to put this work in your intellectual trajectory. So, I'm looking at your CV and I see a medievalist, medievalist in some ways, which is a compliment. Um, You're working in late medieval England. Your first monograph, Peasants in Production in the Medieval Northeast, The Evidence from the Tithes, uh, 1270 to 1536. Boydell, two thousand and seven, demonstrates an interest in rural life and economics and how they how they interact. Um, a thread we can follow into the two volum- volumes you edited, Agriculture and Rural Society after the Black Death. Her- uh Hertfordshire Press 2008 with Richard Britnell and then commercial activity markets and entrepreneurs in the middle ages which is Boydell 2001 this time co-edited with Christian Liddy in honor of Richard Britnell so this this is all kind of, of a piece and makes sense right I see this how this follows um but then the actual medieval genesis of the Black P- Plague aside this book represents a pretty major departure for you yeah
1: well in some ways although there is quite a bit of coverage of the economic stuff that i've been thinking about and working on before because um, a lot of the work that's been done on the black death relates to its economic and social consequences so there is some crossover there
0: yeah i mean absolutely but that's this is uh, this is a very different book i think what 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 did, what led you to this at what point were you like oh, i think i'm going to take a crack at the late 20th century as well
1: well, it was it was mainly through teaching because when I was teaching in Durham in Northern England, I was lucky enough to have a, a, a sort of senior seminar, a small advanced level seminar on the Black Death, which I taught for lots of years. And so I had the opportunity to discuss the Black Death, lots of different aspects of it with students in a small group setting, um, you know, for many, many hours. And one of the things that we covered was the way that the Black Death has been represented and the way that representation has changed. So that kind of got me interested in some of these themes. I also watched The Seventh Seal a lot because we used to watch it every year. And every time I saw it, I thought this film is much more clever than I realised last year or the year before or whatever. So that got me interested too. And then when I came to work in Florida, it's been a, a different sort of scenario because I was very worried that students in Florida wouldn't be very interested in the Middle Ages because it seems so remote and so on. When I was teaching in Durham, the Middle Ages were all around us. And it's been a great sort of pleasure and a great joy of this job has been finding the students so enthusiastic and so interested in the middle ages and that kind of made me wonder why you know why does the middle ages resonate with people when they're not surrounded by you know the remains of the of the middle ages when there's not necessarily a particular reason why they should feel a connection with that not that they shouldn't feel a connection but you know that it seems somewhat remote from florida from growing up in the united states so i got interested that way too and then i thought i would thought i would try to think through some of those issues a little bit more in connection with the black death
0: yeah, that, I, that that definitely I see how that works. Yeah, um, and the the relevance or right, this constant, like let's talk about the way we use our past, and that that's a really big theme here. Um, and you talk about the seven seal just now. You mentioned that, but which is a, one of your sources. What else are you using, and how did you choose the the sources you wanted to use for this?
1: Well, it changed quite a lot when I was working on the project, because when I started out, I thought really what I need to be looking at are sources that have had a lot of sort of reach, sources with big audience and so on. Um, And so I tried to pick some initially that fitted the bill for that, like Ken Follett's World Without End, which is a big sort of Black Death bestseller blockbuster book. And it seemed obvious to talk about that because, or to write about it because so many people had read it. Then it posed a bit of a problem for scholarship because I thought, well, what do I do with scholarship since it has small audiences and, you know, by definition, not many people are reading this stuff. So then I wanted to think about how scholarship influenced other media with wider audiences but then as I worked on it more, I thought, actually, this isn't really a very good way forward because all readers are responding to this work in very different kinds of ways. And so I need to capture the different ways in which people were reading and thinking about this. So it's not just about numbers. What do most people think? It's about what is the range of interpretations? So then I tried to look at some stuff that hasn't necessarily been so um, so popular, so famous, and think about the way in which the Black Death was represented there and why that particular author and their readers might have represented and thought about it in that way. And, you know, obviously it's impossible to get inside everybody's mind or anybody's mind, for that matter, and how they read about anything. But it seemed to me that that was at least one way of trying to look at different interpretations, different readings, different ways of thinking about this.
0: I I mean, the, the Middle Ages kind of writ large has been... Uh, used and used regularly as the uh, for world building, right? Kind of in a mis- misinterpretation. Sometimes a re- very, very, very realistic interpretation, and sometimes we have Game of Thrones, right? So clearly, a lot of things about this period still resonate um, and are still very fascinating uh, to the modern audience. So I think um, it was. This was a very but this subject like the importance of the plague and kind of this disastrous apocalyptic thinking really worked for me. Um, then I think one thing that I, not all of our listeners are really going to understand the gravity of this situation, right? This catastrophic illness, um, or, or kind of what, what actually the Black Plague even really what happened and what it is? Can you just spend a couple of minutes letting us know what what you know about the Black Plague? <laughs> you know,
1: yes, the Black Death is the word used for the uh, a big pandemic that took place in the middle of the 14th century. The disease arrived in Europe in 1347, but had already affected lots of other places further to the east before then, for which we have fewer records it was devastating in its impact in a way that we can't really imagine even having gone through the horrible experience ourselves of the recent pandemic the mortality in the black death was extremely high it varied from place to place but it wasn't unusual for places to lose half of their population within the space of just a few weeks or a few months um there wasn't really any effective treatment or way of dealing with the Black Death beyond running away from wherever it was affecting in the Middle Ages. Um, So there was a sense of helplessness, at least in some ways, although medieval people did have a lot of resources, intellectual resources and so on, to try and explain what they thought was happening and what should be done. Um, But this must have been a truly terrifying experience. I think the only communities that were affected that we know about that are affected by disease. Worse than those affected by the Black Death were some of the Indigenous communities in the Americas after first contact with with Europeans where epidemic mortality could be even higher. But really, the Black Death is... You know, a major candidate for for one of the worst disasters in history that we know about. Um, The Black Death is the first wave of this pandemic but one of the awful things about it is that the disease kept returning thereafter um, first in the early 1360s and then over and over again right through in Europe into the 18th century and elsewhere even later than that and then we have renewed outbreaks of plague into the 20th century. Um, Not on an epidemic scale very recently but obviously plague does still exist as a as a serious illness. Sure.
0: I mean, yeah, these waves of the Black Death coming through. Um, and I just, I really want our, our listeners to sit on that, the idea of losing 50% of a population really in this, in weeks. Everything's fine. And a month later you're just it's it has devastated a town so it's no surprise that this sort of event really lives on in an almost visceral way like the black death is something that you just feel when you say it It really packs a punch um and so the the term memory is even in your title right and it lives on in memory so but what do you mean by memory here
1: well, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this because it was a long way removed from uh, things that I've worked on and thought about before. And I discovered a wonderful body of scholarship and literature on um, what scholars refer to as cultural memory, which is um, kind of like the interaction between the past and present. It's way the way that individuals think about their own past, but also think about the distant past that they weren't alive for and the way also that groups of people think about and represent the past that they've experienced, but also the more distant past that they collectively haven't experienced. And I became really interested in that idea, that it seemed to me that this idea of an interaction um, was a very powerful one. If we talk about something like historical consciousness, it seems as if the past is just there and the question is whether we're aware of it or not. But actually the way that we think about the, what we know about the past changes so much that this idea of interaction between past and present seemed like a very useful way of thinking about it to me. So I tried to use some of those ideas from literary scholars, people like Astrid Earle, who've worked on this a great deal and for lots of different periods. And to try and apply that to the Middle Ages, that like lots of other people have done, too. There's a, a big body of work on cultural memory in the Middle Ages, um, which I, I sought to draw on here. Right. Um,
0: and while we're at it, how do you define myth?
1: Myth was um, also a very interesting one and can be defined in lots of different ways. But it seemed to me that at least for this project, a myth is a story about the past that has something to do with the present that is intended to explain some aspect of the present. So we might tell a story about the Black Death to represent the difference, say, between people in the Middle Ages whom we regard as ignorant and ourselves in the modern period whom we regard as Um, you know, much more aware and much more sort of knowledgeable. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a very true representation, but it is a powerful myth, right, that people in the past knew less, and we know more. And that helps us explain ourselves and define our own identity um, through a little narrative, a little story.
0: And there's myth making, right? It's, It's not necessarily true, but it's not necessarily false either, right? It's Uh, it's the stories we tell ourselves right so it becomes very useful am I understanding that
1: yes I think that's right and I think that if we're looking at basis on evidence and so on some myths are firmly grounded in a lot of evidence in the sense that in historical scholarship we can find myths there are reasons why historians are writing about things in particular ways because of present-day concerns but that isn't to say that they're inventing this stuff you know this is based on serious evidential research and this was certainly the case for a lot of the work done on the 19th century by scholars interested in the Black Death and interested in using sources from the 14th century, but then using those sources to fit a narrative that they had in mind about what their identity was at that time. But equally, of course, as you say, you can have a myth that is much more fictional. You get modern writers modern writers of fiction about the black death who represent the helplessness of medieval people in coping with the disease but invent the idea of the very practical pragmatic and observant female uh, medical practitioner who is able to respond to the challenges of the black death now it's possible that there were female medical practitioners in the 14th century who did some of that stuff but as far as i'm aware we don't have evidence of what they were doing so this is a sort of imagined version of the past that fits uh, with powerful ideas in the present, in the present about the subversion of patriarchy and um, you know the need for new ideas to challenge older ideas and that kind of thing. So that's a a different kind of myth that's less evidentially based, mm-hmm.
0: but useful and 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 um, and it, it serves our purposes, right? It it does. It it serves a purpose, um, and it helps us to make sense of our current world. Yeah.
1: Yes. And it gives us questions to ask about the past as well that we, we might want to say, well, what's the basis of this myth? Can we find any evidence? But also, as you say, use that myth about the past to think about the present and what our own ideas and preconceptions are.
0: So the the Black Death isn't useful for a while or it's it's not forgotten, but it's kind of relegated to the back of cultural memory for for some time until what, around 1825 ish um, when it jumps back into the cultural foreground.
1: I think that's true. I mean, people had written about the Black Death in the period between the Black Death and the beginning of the 19th century. It's not that it's not known about or that people ignored it altogether, but it tends to be dealt with quickly in, you know, um, narratives about the Middle Ages. Um, When cholera arrived in Europe in um, in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, this gave people much more interest in past pandemics. And the Black Death was one of the ones that they looked at um, to try and explain what was happening to them. It wasn't the only one because there were other very famous outbreaks of plague in particular, such as London in the 17th century, which they could also look back to. But some of them also went back further to the 14th century.
0: Um, I've, you referred at one point, someone refers to this as an outbreak narrative, <laughs> like the Black Death provides an outbreak narrative. What do you mean there?
1: Yeah, it's in uh, yeah, Priscilla Ward's book. She writes about outbreak narratives. And this is the idea that we can look to the past, look to history to work out what happens when we have a pandemic. What sort of things should we be looking for? What types of experiences will be? Which is very familiar to us from the experience of, of COVID, right? That there was a lot, especially early on, there was a lot of emphasis on how, what is a pandemic, what is going to happen and what are the likely consequences going to be? And, I, you know, I think that things are very different now, obviously, than they were in the past. So those sort of historical models were useful in some ways, but not very useful in others. But, yeah, that's the idea of an outbreak narrative. And that's how we might look to the past to try and help us understand a pandemic in the present.
0: Uh and another thing that comes out of this 19th century and kind of incarnation of the Black death and the the discussion of the plague, the pandemic is a sort of a really negative Orientalism um, and a, the idea of coming up with a useful of uh, villainous other here, yeah.
1: I think that's a really big part of it, yeah, and there's been a lot of uh, really interesting work done by medical historians in the 19th century on this because cholera is represented in exactly the same way. This is a menace from foreign, primitive, and in inverted commas, parts of the world that is now affecting Europe. And scholars who sought, or writers who sought to link What was happening with the cholera pandemic to what had happened in the 14th century saw what seemed to them to be a familiar situation. That is, disease comes from far away and invades their sort of world. Um, And this comes with all sorts of colonial implications. Um, It can be built into Eurocentric or even white supremacist narratives about civilization and that kind of thing. Uh, And the threat posed to what was regarded as European or often English civilization by foreigners, the foreign world, other parts of the world, and also their colonial sense of their own identity as what they thought of as a civilising force, um, so that they needed to go and teach people in other parts of the world how to deal with pandemic disease or pandemics, because they had already experienced this historically, they'd gone through it and so on. So it's kind of a an interesting contradiction because in some ways these diseases are coming from foreign parts they're foreign diseases invading what they thought were the civilized world but also those diseases belong to the civilized world and it had been overcome by the civilized world so they were both something that was innately sort of european but also something that was innately foreign so you get this these contradictory narratives coming up against each other and creating this sense of European identity, colonial identity in the 19th century and after, for that matter.
0: For that matter. But it's it's very interesting. The idea that these competing myths or like absolutely fighting myths that don't match at all can right. still to coexist, right? There's an Im- immense space for cognitive dissonance and a cultural understanding of, of who we are or who we were.
1: Yeah, and I think the Black Death is an interesting example of that in the sense that, especially in English scholarship and scholarship about England, the way that the Black Death was built into this English exceptionalism, that is to say, there were existing narratives about Anglo-Saxons and what they perceived to be the virtue of these Germanic groups that had settled uh, you know settled Britain in the in the fifth century, sixth century. Um, and those were regarded as the virtues of the English, so they were interested in liberty and individualism and so on. And the Black Death was incorporated into those existing narratives about Englishness and the virtues of the English, the exceptional nature of the English, because the narrative of the English past was represented as Germanic settlers arrived with ideas of liberty and then foreigners come along and they quash that liberty and they introduce things like serfdom and so on and so forth. Then the Black Death comes along and has the effect of liberating those English again so they can be Get back to their roots in liberty, freedom, and so on. Now, this narrative is questionable in so many ways that you wouldn't even know where to start. It's clearly racialized, it's very difficult to represent serfdom as a foreign importation, etc., etc. But nevertheless, this was the narrative that existed in a very powerful way in lots of sources in the 19th century. And the Black Death was fitted into that narrative. Um, It was a big event that happened, and it could be incorporated into this existing understanding of the English past.
0: Well, you you open your third chapter, uh, The Black Death and Englishness, with this really strange moment in recent history with Paul Oakley, uh, the rather boorish former secretary of the equally boorish UKIP, United Kingdom Independence Party, comparing UKIP to the Black Death. And it's head shaking aside... And he did manage to gloss over how the plague killed literally millions of people, but he did stumble into a few germane points there in this way that's kind of diabolical um, and makes, you know, this inclusion of this little moment makes sense. Yeah, it, it's this perfect example of like the end of serfdom and English exceptionalism and in believe Brexit all go together. In this wonderful demonstration of, of no,
1: people's I think that's absolutely right, because the the vote to leave the EU and the um, uh, publicity to try and get people to vote in that way was based on this idea of English exceptionalism, right? That England's trajectory has been different from that of other countries, and therefore we need to... Take back control was the you know the expression used. And you know, I think Oakley was being tongue-in-cheek in the sense that you say something like that on Radio 4 and you're gonna find yourself getting lots of publicity, that <laughs> it's a deliberate strategy, isn't it? To well, they're they're very UKIP are very skeptical of the what they think of this as the established media, so they're trying to make fun of them and mock them and so on. But yeah, as you say, he was also touching on. Um, a very sort of old set of assumptions about what the Black Death meant in terms of Englishness and linking those to new ideas of English and British exceptionalism.
0: Yeah, and Black Death trended on Twitter after this. Yeah. So I would, it, it was effective. It was really effective. Um, hitting on this idea that the Black Death was responsible for the end of serfdom, the beginning of capitalism and you know English greatness, international English greatness.
1: And these ideas, I mean, not always linked to the English exceptionalism, but these ideas are very powerful ones still. If you watch videos on YouTube about the Black Death and so on, and they're very hard to sustain, you know, because the Black Death is clearly not only affecting England. So, you know, it, it then raises all sorts of questions about why didn't the Black Death have the same effects elsewhere or another, even in other parts of Britain, but in other parts of Europe, and other parts of the world, too. So there are a whole set of problematic assumptions um, built into this narrative. But, yeah, it's still a very powerful one
0: yeah and then um, and then we see this again right in the 19th century the late 19th century with another new plague uh, a br- outbreak raging through in- India and China killing millions more um, and myth and memory of this plague kind of uh, melds with the new plague and we bolster new ideas of European and specifically English superiority, even as English and people are dying in India and China. Baffling,
1: right? But not. I mean, it's a fascinating situation that one. And um, Sam Cohn has worked a lot on this to demonstrate the way in which the British in India assumed that they would be able to deal with this problem, partly on the grounds of their. Um, his, their cultural memory about the Black Death and later plague outbreaks, the idea being that the British had already experienced and weathered this crisis. So we will show these people who know less than us how to deal with this. And then as Cohn points out, it doesn't work because they don't really understand the way in which... Nobody understood the way in which plague was operating in India in the, at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. So all these efforts on about, you know, sanitation and so on weren't really very effective for a rat-based disease that needed other forms of, um, you know, that needed other measures putting in place. This leads to a real surge in scientific work on the Black Death and a great advance... In, not on the Black Death, sorry, on plague in the 20th century and a great advance in understanding of how that plague worked and so on. So there's this great false confidence in the european heritage of colonial um, you know uh, uh, british people in india and then that confidence is proved to be empty and then there's a whole body of scientific work that does lead to much greater understanding and ultimately effective treatments of of plague mm-hmm.
0: So as you move into the 20th century, um, I was drawn even more deeply into, this, into the argument because I know what's coming, right? And This is almost my living memory. And after, and after reading, I needed to say, I procured a copy of the Sylvia Townsend Warner novel, The Corner That Held Them, which you're gonna, which is a very important part of this book, and moved the seventh seal onto my watch list. Um, and you do such a great job with both of these examples, but we really only have time for a deep dive into one of them. So I was hoping you'd talk to us about The Corner That Held Them.
1: Yes, of course. Yes. This corner that held them was written by uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner, who was already quite a well-established novelist and short story writer by that point. So she was publishing lots of stories in the New Yorker. Um, she was known for her kind of experimental modernist fiction. Um, she was very committed politically, and she was very much involved in the war efforts on the home front in, in Britain during the Second World War. And this was a novel that she wrote while she was uh, involved in all these other tasks, um, helping people in in southern England, um, educating people on the home front, etc cetera, etc, cetera. so this was an experience that she or this was a novel that she wrote about the experience of a fictional nunnery in Norfolk in the middle of the fourteenth century and it begins around the time of the Black Death and then it follows a community of nuns through towards the end of the fourteenth century. Um, and it is a story about the nuns' preoccupations, but it is a story that sets a big event like the Black Death in the context of lots of other crises and difficulties that the nuns faced, and the nuns weren't really able to make sense of these crises that they were dealing with, so she provides a different kind of historical narrative about the 14th century. Instead of picking out what historians think are the major developments and the consequences of their major developments she looks at a group of people living in a backwater cut off from lots of society lots of aspects of society and life and how they sought to cope with the black death but then with all the other things that happened to them petty squabbles in the cloister and later on the peasants revolt affects them and the um you know the day-to-day impact of this and scholars working on Sylvia Townsend Warner have pointed to the similarity between the experience of the nuns in Obie in the 14th century and the experience of Sylvia Townsend Warner and her partner, Valentin Ackland, women working on the home front in the war, doing all these things that were very important for the war effort, but also frustrated and obsessed by trivialities. You know, they can't get the food they want. Um, You know, there are no vegetables available. So they try growing them in their garden. They go and find stuff that's left on the beach, you know, that they hope they might be able to improve their diets with. So it's a combination of major global events going on around them, but also the frustrations and the pettiness of daily life. And so literary scholars have sought to find a parallel between the way that Sylvia Townsend Warner represented the experience of Black Death in the 14th century and the way that women on the home front experienced the Second World War. And
0: this concept as well of something... So massive that's happening out there, but completely outside of one's control. And there's a capriciousness to World War Two. And there's a capriciousness to the black death that really makes sense like that really resounds. Um, And yet you simply have to just live in that. Yeah.
1: It's, and it's a very powerful evocation of what the Black Death might have been like, because the nuns at Obi are terrified about what's going to happen to them. They hear about the impact of the Black Death in nearby towns. Ultimately, of course, it comes to their convent and kills some of the nuns. But they also have to continue singing the daily services and so on, complaining about bits of eggshell that they found in their pancake in the morning, that sort of stuff. So daily life continues. So Sylvia Townsend Warner was subverting our understanding of historical narratives. The Black Death came along. It was awful, but it liberated English people and ended serfdom and so on. Not if you were the nuns in Obi, that they were aware vaguely of some of these wider social developments and so on because it was harder to get people to work on their land and so on. But their life wasn't... You know, it wasn't sort of, we are actors in this grand historical process. Their life was just like the lives of the rest of us. It was just a mess. There were all sorts of things going on. And sometimes they thought about stuff. Sometimes they didn't thought about think about things. Sometimes people were good and generous. Sometimes people were selfish and awful. And so this was a, a new kind of narrative about the Black Death that Townsend Morner was creating, which I... I thought was a very interesting sort of counterpoint to all these big works of scholarship that have been produced. What were the effects of the Black Death? They were these. Oh, no, they weren't. They were these. The evidence shows this. The evidence shows that Sylvia Townsend Warner imagined the Black Death in an entirely different way in her book.
0: I'm very excited to read this um, and then of course the the black death is has recently had an even new uh, and uh, yet more press right um, there's been there' been a big surge of interest in the black death you know continuing through the 20th century but the beginning of the covid 19 pandemic in 2020 um, which continues kind of um, you know which're we continuing we are continuing to ride out the end of one hopes um, and, and this, so, the Black Plague continues, or the Black Death continues to resonate through Covid, yeah?
1: I think that's right, But even before Covid, I think one of the difficulties is that it's quite early to say, you know I'm sure there is there are going to be all sorts of Black Death myths and memories and so on created, represented as a result of the Covid nineteen pandemic. But in this project, I was only really able to go to just before it when there's a whole group of really interesting novels about the Black Death that were written before, uh, before the beginning of COVID, but no doubt actually read and consumed and resonated in ways the authors couldn't have imagined during the pandemic itself. Um, So in a sense, I think historical interest in the Black Death did wane somewhat in the middle of the 20th century, um, and historians sought other ways of explaining social change, the end of serfdom, developments in the late Middle Ages, that the Black Death was awful, and it was important, but it was kind of part of much wider developments that can be explained through social sciences through you know other historical interpretations that kind of changed a bit in the 1980s when there was renewed uncertainty about what the black death was so we didn't feel so confident in the way we were explaining it but even throughout all that time really the black death has had a very powerful prominent role in popular culture and media um And this sort of recent flowering of Black Death novels with uh, Helen Marshall's The Migration sort of science fiction horror novel about the Black Death. And then Christopher Wilson's Hurdy-Gurdy as a sort of comedic interpretation of the Black Death. James Meek wrote a book called Calais in Ordinary Time, which is about the experience of Black Death too. These just before COVID-19, this spate of new novels continuing that sort of that memory representing it in new and interesting ways.
0: I mean is that just about in uncertainty is that hopelessness is this about climate change what what's going on here
1: I think it's a bit of both I think that the I tried to write a, a bit about black death triumphalism I called it in the book which is this idea that as a society we would not be subject to that kind of thing now because we know better we can deal with Pandemic. So I think there's a very powerful idea. Once they, you know, once they understood, scientists and doctors understood plague better in the early 20th century into the mid 20th century, they're able to treat it with antibiotics. There was a sort of wider sense that we, we sort of had this problem solved. It was awful for them in the Middle Ages, but we can deal with that now. Then there was the scientific uncertainty well, maybe the Black Death wasn't bubonic plague, which is a big scholar debate in the 80s, 90s into the 2000s. But in popular fiction and popular representations of the Middle Ages, I think you see this idea of the Black Death as something very medieval and we as modern people know better. This is where the stories like Ken Follett's World Without End and Minette Walter's books about the Black Death too, is another historical novelist writing in the, these were written in the, 2000s uh, and the 2010s these are stories about the middle ages historical novels about the middle ages imagining ways in which people outside the medical establishment could have dealt with the situation so in a sense they're imposing a little bit of modernity on the middle ages showing that if people had listened to female medical practitioners if people had listened to their sensible observational advice they would have been able to deal with it so there's that group of novels in the early 2000s And then, as you say, there's renewed uncertainty in these novels coming later on, which are Helen Marshall's novel, The Migration, for example, is about a new pandemic in the sort of uh, near future that seems to be connected to the Black Death and has horrifying unexpected consequences. So it's, again, bringing in this idea of us not really understanding what the Black Death was or what diseases are now. So the emphasis is not on modern people understanding everything, but the emphasis is on we don't necessarily understand. But as you say, there's a connection with climate change there because this is set in a period of, you know, um, increasing, accelerating climate crisis. And those ideas touched on in other novels, too. So, yeah, I think that renewed anxiety kind of is gradually taking the place of that triumphalism. That was apparent in those earlier representations.
0: All right. So uh, how do you reckon people are going to use and possibly abuse the Black Death in the, the near future?
1: It's hard to tell, isn't it? I've been trying to think about this and trying to look for straws in the wind. There was an early phase um, in 2020 when there was quite a lot in the media about the positive consequences that were going to arise out of COVID-19 and there was some looking back to the Black Death there where people said, oh well, you know, the Black Death was obviously horrifying but look at the improvements in living standards that followed. What if the same thing applies um, in the aftermath of COVID-19 and people pointed to lack of pollution, um, lowering carbon emissions and so on. I think it would be very difficult to sustain those arguments now as we are further into the pandemic and nobody is thinking about lack of, you know, lower carbon emissions and so on. I mean, it's not entirely wrong in the case. I suppose you could argue that there have been major medical advances as a result of COVID-19 with new types of vaccines developed and so on. But I don't think that we could have foreseen the fact that people wouldn't want to take those vaccines or take advantage of those medical, you know, those medical advances. So I think there are COVID is developing in what seemed to me at least completely unexpected ways um, that on the one level, we were able really to deal with a pandemic in a way that people weren't in previous pandemics, but then renewed obstacles came to actually solving this problem. So Who knows what sense we're going to try to make of the Black Death in the context of that. Um, My sense is, at least, though, that there's an enormous amount of work being done on the Black Death, that this is renewed um, excitement and interest, Um, certainly new work on the Black Death as a global pandemic, major breakthroughs by Monica Green and people working with her about the impact of the Black Death and the origins of the Black Death outside of Europe. Now, that work was being done before, COVID-19, but COVID-19 really um, increases the urgency, doesn't it, of seeking to understand pandemics as global events and not just events that need to be dealt with in individual states and individual countries. Um, So perhaps that's a a direction that, as I say, existed already, but will be given increased momentum um, as part of COVID-19 and hopefully, as you say, in the aftermath of that, when that aftermath comes.
0: Sure. All right. All right. Okay, I have taken quite enough of your time already, so I have just one last question. should be an easy one. Um, So what's next? What are you working on?
1: Uh, I'm working on stories about outlaws at the moment and trying to think about um, what was common in medieval stories about outlaws and what the differences were between those stories and what the significance of those similarities and differences were in the way we think about Robin Hood stories, but also stories about other famous medieval outlaws. So that's what i'm trying to do at the moment oh wow
0: that must be fun so what are you what are you reading for this
1: um obviously a lot of outlaw stories (laughs) i had never read um the icelandic sagas before and there are some um really wonderful outlaw sagas Mm -hmm. which have blown my mind with their sort of uh, what seemed to me a totally unexpected way of representing outlaws, really very different from the stories that I was more familiar with from medieval England, uh, medieval France and so on. So those are the sources that I've been trying to think about and trying to make sense of, which has been exciting and very difficult. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well uh that's that's exciting and I'm sorry that it's difficult but I'm really looking forward to <laughs> reading it the benefits thereof all right Ben thank you so much um and we will get together to chat about your outlaw book when that comes
1: out so it's not a book it's just a chapter that one I don't think I could write a book on that but yeah just a little <laughs> right. sort of paper but uh, thank you very much and thank you for talking to me about, uh, to me about this it's been a, a pleasure
0: all right take care
1: you too bye-bye